Right, like how many people would start a, uh, a plumbing business or, or a restaurant or a cafe or, or pretty much anything and think, oh yeah, I'm, I'm going to be in the black. I'm going to be in profit from month one. It's like, no, 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 you, you, you'll be in profit by month five or six. By the time you've built up enough clientele, you get your name out there, people understand who you are, what you do. They respect the quality, they respect the price, whatever. And then that's when suddenly it can take off. Now in property, it's not 20 years like Amazon. It might not be five or six months. Hello and welcome. You're listening to Dash on Insider, the auditory epicenter for passionate property investors seeking a life of freedom, choice, and abundance. Today's episode was really interesting, uh, in my humble opinion. I was joined by Emil Pinder, who's our content marketing manager, but he's also a complete property nerd. And uh, he and I uh, get along quite well. And we really wanted to dig into some interesting topics today around negative cash flow, negative gearing, all of that kind of stuff. And kind of like, I guess where we went with really how to navigate the the mentality in the current environment. We dug into some case studies, really interesting story about Jeff that we dug into. Um, you know, Emil grilled me and a whole bunch of stuff. To be honest, this was, I, I feel like it was a very unique style of episode uh, for uh, for this podcast, but I actually think it was really, really good. Highly engaging. Emil is uh, full of really interesting questions. And so we, do- we, we dodged around heaps of really interesting stuff as it relates to how to become a more successful investor in the current environment. And the current environment points to the fact that a lot more properties are negatively geared or negatively cash flow. We dig into those terminologies, negatively geared, negative cash flow, positive gear, positive cash flow, so you can understand it and make better decisions. At the end of the day, that's the real function of this podcast is to help you make more informed, more intelligent property investment decisions so that you can create a life of freedom, choice, and abundance. This episode, I think, ticks all of those boxes. And on that note, I think you are going to love it. So make sure you share this with a friend, family member, or loved one. Let's get right into it. I'll see you on the inside. Hey, guys. Welcome back to Dash.Insider. Joining me on today's episode is a very special guest, someone that you may very well start to see a little bit more of. His name's Emil Pinder. Emil, how are you today? Very well. Thanks, Goose. Yourself? I'm very well. I'm excited to be chatting with you. Now, people who are listening to this podcast will have no context around you or, in fact, our relationship. But you and I have been hanging out together, talking property, talking content marketing, all kinds of stuff for like the last probably four years. And now you've just joined Dashdot as our as our new content marketing manager, which I'm super excited about because you are stupidly passionate about property. And I say that in the best possible way. Um but what's also really interesting is that you're living in Tokyo. So, why don't you give us a little bit of background? Tell, help the help the listeners understand who are you? What's your kind of what's your story? Uh, yeah, well, I'm originally Kiwi. I uh, hope that doesn't ruin things for people. But uh, uh, I come from a pretty property focused family. My father was a real estate agent. Before that, he was a builder. My uncle was a builder. Uh, I was always sort of brought up on you know properties, way to wealth, properties, way to wealth, properties, way to wealth. And then you look around, and it turns out that that seems to be largely true. You look at you know the the richest 100 people in Australia and like 80% of them plus apparently built their wealth out of property. It's the asset class of choice. It outperforms like pretty much everything else over the long term that's pretty much ever existed. And so I've been really big on property for a long time. I um, I got my portfolio. Um, I've done a couple of developments. I've uh, sold a lot of property. Uh, I've worked with a lot of different property firms because even though I'm heavily interested in property, my skill set was in marketing. And so I ended up working with a lot of different property firms, everything from mortgage brokers, uh, property marketing companies, developers, lots and lots of people, right? So I'm pretty I'm pretty in the space. Um, but uh, I actually lived in Japan uh, in from 2001 to 2007. 
And because uh, I was just, I, I just really interested in the culture, the food, the martial arts, all that sort of thing. Um, my wife's Japanese, and so about six, seven years ago, the reason that we ended up in Japan, we got four children, and it was just about the right time for us to pop over here. Um, now, Japan is not great for property. So if you think of buying property- I was going to ask about that. I was going to ask, like, what's the, what's the property market like in, in it's, Japan? It's weird because we don't have the same inflationary pressures that drive prices up. There's a little mm. bit of it, but I mean, when I first came to Japan in 2001, you get a little thing of bottled water for like 100 yen. And uh, what's a hundred yen in, in Aussie dollars? Uh, about a dollar ten cents. Got it. At a dollar yep. ten cents, and and but with the exchange rate the way it was back then, it was like paying two bucks or a dollar eighty or something like that. And that same bottle of water in Australia at the time was probably about half that price, right? Probably when paying a dollar for for a bottle of water back in two thousand one. Um, but now that bottle of water in Tokyo it's the same price. Or it's gone up by about three percent because they changed the uh, the tax that they have, the consumer tax, the the GST equivalent. Um, whereas in Australia, it's it's shot through the roof, right? I don't know how much is a bottle of water these days. Well, I don't know because, like you, I don't spend that much time in Australia, <laughs> <laughs> so I've got no idea how much a bottle of water is in Australia. But every time I go back there, the, like things are not that uh, not that cheap and. You know, cost of living has gone up a lot, particularly with with a lot of inflation in the in the last you know twenty four months. Cost of living has gone up a lot, so I actually have no idea what someone would be paying for a bottle of water right now. But it, I'd suggest I'd suggest it's more than people are comfortable with. I can tell you that. Yeah, I would say as a ratio, like maybe water is not the best example, but for other like just general general goods that you're going to pick up at a supermarket or a or a servo, things are now about four to five times more expensive in Australia than they were relative to Japan 20 years ago. And and so there's a lot of inflation that happens in Australia due to money printing and things like that, or, or technically not necessarily money printing, but the banks writing more and more loans and the inflation that naturally happens as a result of that. So Japan is a great place to live, like Bali, great place to live. Australia is a great place to invest in. And um, Australia is such a good place to invest in. I've, I've been looking at, um, I've been doing a bit of research into global investing markets. Um, you'd be interested to know that from a yield perspective, Ghana is looking pretty good um, at the moment. I was, talking to, I was talking to Gabby the other day and I was like, should we buy an apartment in Ghana, you know, just for the lols? And she was like, listen, man, get your shit sorted. And, but, <laughs> but, but, it's, but in terms of like from an, from an investment perspective, Australia's got like, I think, let me rephrase that. From a growth perspective, I think uh, for your ability to build wealth in real estate is the best in Australia. Than it, it's better in Australia than anywhere else in the world. You can definitely get better yields elsewhere on the planet, but you've also then got to consider like relative cash on cash return because in Australia, you may be able to get an 80 or 90% uh, lend on the property. And sure, the yield might not be 10 to 14% like you can get somewhere else, like Thailand maybe, right? Yeah, but absolutely. But the relative cash on cash return and the you know the relative internal rate of return is going to be significantly higher than if you were to invest in cash in one of those other countries. Well, funny you mention that because what I wanted to ask you, there's a, a little bit of an investment journey that someone's gone through. Uh, I won't use his real name. We'll call him Jeff. And I've written down all the numbers because I want to make sure I got these absolutely right. And I want to get your take on this particular investment strategy. And I want uh, I, I want to get like you know from the absolute top of the tree. A dash dot. 
<laughs> like, go for it. Like, tell us about Jeff. Tell us about. Tell us all about Jeff. What's what's Jeff, Jeff doing? Really smart or really dumb or somewhere in between? All right. So it was okay. probably. Let's go. Uh, and I've got the exact numbers here, right? I tried to memorize them, but I didn't want to mess it up. So, <laughs> so if you see me looking there, it's to make sure this is one hundred percent accurate. In May twenty nineteen, so we're talking pre-pandemic, Jeff buys a property for three hundred and ninety thousand dollars, and on that. He has a mortgage of $347,000. Now, the interest rate at the time was 5.5%. Now, what that meant was um, that the cash flow on the property wasn't great. I know this is something that, you know, at Dashdot, we're really, really bullish on like positive cash flow, positive cash flow, positive cash flow, or, or even better, positive gearing, positive gearing, positive gearing. And I, I'm... I'll explain maybe what the difference is between those because there is a, a subtle but very important difference in those a little bit, a little bit down the track. Now, two years later, in September 2021, right? So it's two years, a couple of months later, he refinanced. He pulled fifty thousand dollars out of that property because it had grown, and he used that to finance another property. So now he's got two properties, and another two years after that. He got a desktop valuation on the original property, right? So Jeff's first property, property A, property number one, that he originally bought for three hundred ninety thousand, and so the valuation, which came in in November last year, that was seven hundred sixty thousand, right? And so the banks looked at that and said, "Yep, fine." And so now he's borrowed another two hundred eight thousand, and gone into a third property. So now he's got three properties. He's got a lot of borrowing, but it all came basically from the growth in that very first property. Now, on the face of it, based on what you've heard now, he's he's got a portfolio that's about 1.73 million. So he's got quite a lot. It's positively geared, which means that the income that he's getting from those three properties is now more than all of the expenses without needing to rely on the tax man, you know, without needing to claim deductions and things like that. And the equity that he has, so the asset value of the portfolio, according to the valuations, is $1.73 million. And those valuations- Yeah, and how much, how much debt's on that portfolio at the moment? What's the, what's the current LVR? Uh, well, he's got 341 k in equity. So the remainder would be debt. So one point seven. Okay, so the first three, four. So right, that's- one point four. That's roughly it's roughly eighty percent LBR. Roughly eighty percent LBR is yeah. what he's got on that portfolio. Pretty much okay, cool. So, he, so he's got three hundred and forty six k, three hundred and forty one k. Did you say three hundred and forty one k in equity? Yeah, awesome. Okay, and he started in twenty nineteen. So in twenty nineteen, now he had it cost him like that. That initial property, remember, was three hundred ninety thousand that it cost. And he had $347,000 mortgage. So there's a shortfall of 43 grand that he needed to have there. So that was what his initial investment was 43 grand. Plus, there was some LMI, some other expenses, you know, reports for this, that, you know, what, whatever fees he has to pay. There's, there could have been a buyer's agent involved. The initial investment all up for everything uh, was uh, stamps as well 90K. 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 That was the total. Okay, ninety k total ca total cash in at the start was ninety thousand dollars, and the current and the current and that that factors in everything. Then he's leveraged equity throughout his portfolio 
to go and buy more properties. And now, on a net basis, he's got $341,000 in um, in equity. So basically, he's turned $90,000 into $341,000 in four years, basically. Yeah. So he's, he's almost 4x his money. If that, instead of being 341, if that was 360, he's, he's 4x his money in four years. Yeah. So the percentage increase is 278%. Yeah, that's right. So he's, so he's had a 278% increase. <laughs> so he started with 90 grand and now he's got $341,000, right? And so so what's interesting about this? So and you mentioned that the property the properties are positive or negatively geared. Right now all across all three properties because he sort of sees these as a bundle, right? I mean yeah. he's got a, a portfolio. He's taking a portfolio approach. Yeah. yeah. So if you take a portfolio approach, he's got other properties, right? So his portfolio is bigger than these three. But if we just sort of silo these three, because I, I think it's illustrative because they came from the one initial property. Yeah, okay, that's interesting. So, yeah. he, so he silos that off and just says, well, let's see how I've done from this initial purchase. How much has that mm. affected my portfolio? Because he doesn't have all of his portfolio. all sort of. And so based on this little string of properties, this little bundle that we're specifically looking at in this context, positively or negatively? Positively. Positively? Yeah. Yeah, okay, cool. I mean, like, why wouldn't that be a good idea? Why? Here's <laughs> my little trap. Here's my little trap. Okay. Goose. Yeah, I was wondering, where's the, where's the, where's the trip hazard? Yeah, yeah. This, this is the thing, right? Because overall, it, it sounds like a great outcome, right? He's turned $90,000 into 341. That's the 278% increase, right? Which is a 3.78x of his initial. And it's now positive geared. Right, because the second two properties he bought in a trust, and so he doesn't get all of the tax benefits that you have if you buy them as an individual that you can offset against income. And so it's positively geared now, not just positive cash flow, but positively geared. But the very first property, and here's the real crux, the very first property wasn't. The very first property was negatively geared. And and this is this is an interesting question, right? Because when we look at the outcome, it sounds great. But, you know, we're so bullish and, and people are so bullish these days on it has to be positively geared, it has to be positively geared, it has to be positively geared all the time. So my question to you is like, this was negatively geared to the tune of $9,000 per year. Now, when you take that $9,000, so that's that's $9,000 in losses, plus there are other losses that he can complain as, uh, that he can claim as well, like uh, a portion of the LMI and depreciation uh, on it as well, that ended up costing him like zero cash flow. So it was- Okay, so it was $9,000 negative cash flow in the first instance, but after all the tax deductions and all of that kind of stuff, it ended up being net neutral. So it's, yeah, it's $9,000 negatively geared, but it's cash flow neutral after the tax deductions. Yeah, awesome. So I want to pull, I want to pick this apart because this is really, really, this is super interesting, right? And- What's really, really interesting about this is a couple of things. So in the first instance, when most people are starting their property portfolio, the most important thing is not cash flow, right? There's effectively three phases, the broadly speaking, that would look at how portfolios are established. Now, everyone's got unique circumstances. So to some degree, it needs to be tailored to the individual, right? But broadly speaking, most people in the first instance have got more borrowing capacity than uh, than they do capital, right? So in this case, this individual... Sounds like had more borrowing capacity than they had capital. They'd got some money together, but they had a surplus of borrowing capacity. 
which probably also means they've got a surplus of income, i.e. they have a savings rate because your ability to borrow is going to be directly directly related to your capability to be able to afford more debt. So if you can afford, if you can afford more debt, it means that you've got more surplus income, i.e. savings, i.e. you know you've got you've got a savings rate. Right? So, and in the first in the first kind of stage of the portfolio, the most important thing you can do is accelerate your capital because there's only three constraints in their portfolio that people need to get their head around. It's access to capital access to debt and access to cash flow. So cash flow in, the, in this context can either come from properties or it can be like your savings rate that you can contribute to your portfolio or any other element of income that's being derived in a form of money. So you've got those three components, income, debt, and capital. And the first phase of the port, port, portfolio, this, the, the most advantageous thing that people can, can focus on is accelerating their capital, access to capital, which means focusing on how do they turn the money they've got into the most amount of capital possible, the biggest amount of wealth, which typically means focusing more on growth and less on cash flow right? in that context. Then what happens as we, we, we transition to a middle phase of the portfolio, where as your, as your borrowing capacity starts to deplete, as you start to get more properties and relatively you might not be generating significantly more income from those properties or potentially there may be negative income or neutral or something like that, your borrowing capacity will begin to deplete and you'll start to see an edge to your capability to continue to buy. That's when you move. So the first phase, we call that the foundation phase. The second phase, we call that the acceleration phase where you start to transition from more growth-focused assets to assets which are going to produce enough income to be able to supplement your borrowing capacity such that you can continue to grow your portfolio. That's sort of how you kind of extend beyond the sort of first four prop- three to four properties and start to get to sort of five, six, seven. Then you've built a portfolio, and but the goal still is how do we maximize our equity in the portfolio? So the goal even with the acceleration phase isn't income replacement. The goal with the acceleration phase is like, how do we stretch out our ability to continue to build muscle in our portfolio until you find an edge? Now, the goal is how much equity can I make in the shortest period of time relative, you know, which is probably still going to be like five to seven years or something like that. But how much wealth can I build in my portfolio before I completely run out of options to keep going? That's kind of the goal. That's, and that's how you want to play in those kind of th- those distinctly two phases. Then once you've reached that limit, that's when you then transition to what we call the legacy phase, which is going, okay, now that I've got all this equity, I get now need to focus on income assets. Now, income assets can take a variety of different forms. Income assets can be everything from whole apartment uh, complexes to digital individual apartments to... Um, you know, all kinds of different, uh, you know, ways that we might, or commercial rooming houses, you know, there's loads of different options that you might choose specifically because they will solve an income side of the equation. And that's where we see income replacement happen. That's where we see, you know, portfolio rebalancing and all that kind of stuff. So it's kind of like, broadly speaking, three phases there that everyone needs to to go through. And in this context, go on. The way you're describing it, you've, you've sort of jumped a few stages further than what Jeff is at. Going back to the original question, if we look at that very first property, right, which is in the foundation phase, or, or what we would call the foundation phase, from the way you're describing it, have I got this right that really at that point you're looking for growth? Growth is growth is the key driver. Yes. Now, the specific um, uh, constraint there is going to be the individual, right? Because your ability to afford any, say, negative cash flow in favor of growth is going to be dictated by two things. How much money can you make and how much money can you save? So if you're earning not much money and you're spending heaps of money, guess what? 
in this case, Jeff had $9,000 of, of negative cash flow and then that, that all kind of neutralized after tax or whatever. But if there's a cash deficit that is in the portfolio and you can't afford it, well, then maybe you maybe that's going to be a constraint on your ability to seek out those opportunities to accelerate your capital further. But the goal in the first stage of the portfolio shouldn't be income. The goal should be growth because that's how you're going to move further forward faster. Now, in this context, Jeff Jeff managed to turn $90,000 into $341,000 in uh, four years. So if we say 341 uh, 341 minus 90 uh, is $251,000, which basically means that Jeff was able to make, what's 250 divided by four, quick maths, um, was able to make an additional $62,000, $63,000 year for four years. Why? Because he focused on the thing that he needed most in that stage of the portfolio, which was developing equity in the portfolio. Now, I don't know many people who wouldn't like an additional $62,000, $63,000 worth of uh, net worth accumulating every single year while they sleep. So, um, I think that by, by the sound of what you've, you've kind of mapped out there, it sounds like this has been a really smart move. And the reason I say that is because now there's $341,000 of equity in the portfolio. So, even if, even if Jeff was now in a position where he's like, ah, okay, I kind of can't continue to grow more portfolio, which I don't think would be the case because he's incorporated trust. So there's probably going to be some advantageous borrowing capabilities there, if not advantageous tax capabilities. Um, he's got now $341,000 of equity that he can use to parlay into assets, which are going to help the proliferation of the portfolio through income. Does that make sense? It does make perfect sense. What's also interesting to me is that even if he does nothing now, right, even like Heaven forbid, you know, we wouldn't want this to happen to him, but if he gets hit by a bus and he's in a coma for 10 years and can't do anything, he's got a property manager, he's got property managers in place. In 10 years, normally we would expect property to double, right? That's what it's done historically. And so that's a, that's another 1.73 million that he has in equity. So equity, that's right. Not just in additional growth, but actually in additional equity because the debt component, even if the debt component is the same, the, the equity would grow. Right. So ultimately what we're looking for is growth at the initial stage, but then we want to get ourselves into a comfortable cash flow position as quickly as possible. Or once we're getting that initial growth and the asset starts to grow, but the debt is starting to get substantial, we want to make sure that we're in a sufficiently good cash flow position so that the asset's still protected and we're not going to get in financial trouble. It's about sustainability, right? Because and and this is where this is where people come unstuck in a in a big way. Now you may very well be able to get really good growth historically in a place like Bondi Beach, but the yields are like one percent. Now, from a sustainability perspective, in terms of the ability to afford that negativity in terms of cash flow, that's really 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 hard. Like you've got to be a very high income earner. To be able to absorb that deep of a financial loss on the on like literal cash loss every single year, even after all the kind of tax considerations, we may be able to claim some of that back. And so this is where we want to think about sustainability. Now, if I'm earning a million dollars a year in uh, net income after tax, yeah, sure, and I've got a property that's like negative negative cash flow by a hundred thousand dollars a year, maybe I can afford that. That's totally fine. But if I'm earning one hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, can I afford a property that's negative cash flow by a hundred thousand dollars? Uh, probably not, right? And so, what you want to establish is sustainability, right? And what you actually also want to look at is like total, total kind of like net return basis. How much money you're making, not just on the cash side, but also on the growth side. And I like to think about it as being, to your point, you know, in the example there of 
you know, going into a coma and waking up 10 years later, what position are you going to be? This is, this is this is where the sustainability element comes into it. I like to think about it like in a slightly less morbid way that it's like it, once you've once you've once you've done some establishment in your portfolio, if you decided that you wanted to, I don't know, move to Vietnam and you know become a bartender and just whatever, or just sit on a beach and write a book, are you going to come back to Australia five or ten years later? And are you going to be how much wealthier are you going to be? That's the sustainability element of it, right? That's how to think about it. It's kind of like, well, once you've got the engine moving, off you go. And I just I just want to throw another point in here as well, which is I think super relevant because sometimes when like property investors have a tendency to think about property as this like super unique, you know, thing. It, it's an asset, right? It's an investment class. It's a type of asset you can invest in. You can invest in bonds, you know, you can invest in shares, you can invest in this Bitcoin, all this kind of stuff. And the way you kind of want to think about this uh, to some degree in the early stages of the portfolio is like investing in a startup. Now, most startups aren't cash machines in the first in the early stages of the, of the business, right? But as, but the reason that people invest in them and the reason that they that they you know become super valuable is because they become cash machines later on. I mean, if you look at Amazon, it lost money for the first like, I don't know, 20 years or something like that of its of its existence. Now, I'm not suggesting that you should go and lose money every year for 20 years, but in the in the context of your portfolio being a business, part of what you're doing is you're funding the capital that's required to really get that business to go. And I think that people need to get a little bit more comfortable with that because you're effectively building this startup of you, of your own portfolio that's going to fund everything that you want later on and taking a longer term time horizon can be really, really valuable. Right. Like how many people would start a, uh, a plumbing business or, or a restaurant or a cafe or, or pretty much anything and think, oh yeah, I'm, a, I'm going to be in the black. I'm going to be in profit from month one. It's like, oh no, no, you, you, you'll be in profit by month five or six. By the time you've built up enough clientele, you get your name out there, people understand who you are, what you do. They respect the quality, they respect the price, whatever. And then that's when suddenly it can take off. Now, in property, it's not 20 years like Amazon. It might not be five or six months. Um, but you're sort of leading me into my next question here at the moment. Now, as I mentioned, the property was negatively geared. Now, to get a couple of definitions out there to, to kind of simplify it for everyone, when we say negatively geared, what we mean is the income that you derive from the property, which is pretty much rent and that's all, is less than what the costs are associated with holding that property. Now, those costs are the the mortgage thing you have, um, plus uh, accounting, maintenance- Writing expenses, property management, right? All, all, all of that, all of that right? stuff, right? Yeah. And it's positively geared if your rent can cover everything and you don't have to rely on the tax man. You can have a negatively geared property, which is positive cash flow. You can, exactly. Right? And that, uh, that's the, that, that, that that's the interesting thing. Right. Yeah, that's that's a really interesting thing. Sorry to sorry to, to jump over the top of you, but this is really really interesting to me because, you know, a, as you mentioned at the start, we've for four years we've been talking about positive cash flow, positive cash flow, positive cash flow, positive cash flow, and that's great. But like, we can't give tax advice, right? So you sort of need to speak to an accountant. But we might find a property which is negative cash flow, right? In the first instance, before any of the tax con- depreciation considerations. So you mean negative geared, right? Yeah, well, yes, but if you just if you just if you look at it if you look at effectively an Apex report. By the way, if you want to get a copy of the Apex report so you can run all these numbers yourself, we'll put a link in the show notes because it, it's a 
stupidly it's valuable awesome. tool. It's a, it's an insanely it's valuable tool. one of these, you, you yeah, don't do anything until you've got one. <laughs> exactly. You can analyze any property anywhere in the country based on your own personal circumstances and you can work out, is it going to be negatively, positively cash flow? There's even a little spot for you to put in there the tax consideration and the depreciation consideration once you've spoken to the relevant you know professionals about that, plus it'll forecast, all that kind of stuff. So get yourself a copy of the APEX report. There'll be a link in the show notes. But if you look at an APEX report and before you've put in the tax and depreciation considerations, let's just say the income from the property um, was $20,000, but the expenses were $25,000. Okay, so okay well, negative gear. That's, yeah, that's going to be $5,000 negative cash flow on a pre-tax consideration, which is, to your point, negatively geared. However, in a post-tax and post-depreciation consideration, that may actually turn out to be cash flow positive. And here's, here, is, here is where a lot of people are coming unstuck, particularly in the current environment, is they are looking at the initial number and they're going, well, hang on a second. This property here is, looks like it's got, uh, it's got a rent of $20,000 $20, and operating expenses of $25,000. Mm, nah, so, nah, I don't want to like get into this, right? Could be 29 like Jess. Could be nine grand. Nine grand is in the hole. Now, if you look at that, if he, if he looked at that initially and he's like nine grand in the hole, gee, I'm putting, I'm putting 90 grand into this property and now it's going to cost me another nine grand per year. That, that, you, you need to have a lot of confidence that the property is going to grow to take that on. But then you go and see the, your accountant and they can work out the depreciation schedule. They can work out what all the expenses are going to be. And actually, it doesn't cost you a cent, right? And so it's it's neutral cash flow in his case. It could be positive, which would be great. Another question for you would be, like, what if it did still cost him a thousand dollars a year? What's yeah? Well, I, is that well, this, a deal? Yeah. Well, p- me per- personally, yeah. Like, I will put my hand up and say my entire portfolio is negative cash flow right now. My entire portfolio is negative cash right, right now because of interest rates and all of that kind of stuff. But guess what? I am making so much money in terms of growth. Like the pro- the property, all all of the properties that I've got are shooting up in value. So let's just arbitrarily, for the point of the example, say that the my portfolio is costing me ten thousand dollars a year in negative cash flow across the portfolio across the portfolio. But, but if I'm making a hundred or two hundred thousand dollars a year across the portfolio, is that money well spent? <laughs> is that money well spent? Right, it's a good investment. Like how many investments out there? How many investments are there out there where you can go right? I'm going to put in ten grand this year, and I'm going to get a ten x return. Right? Yeah. There, there aren't many things you can do with a security of property. Exactly. Now you do have to consider that that's not the only money you're putting in. Like you are putting in the initial startup capital, which is the deposit and the stamp duties, and you have to consider that as well. But here's the thing: it's like what I, like, right, right now, and I, I say this with absolute sincerity. I think that there is a significant wealth creation event happening right now in Australia, and I'm seeing loads of people miss out on it. I'm seeing loads of people miss out on it because they're unable to look past the idea that. You know, they might have to spend an additional two, three, four, five, whatever it is, ten ten thousand dollars over the course of a twelve month period. But what they will actually be doing is setting themselves up to make a hundred, two hundred, three hundred, four hundred, five hundred thousand dollars over the next few years. And I'm seeing a lot of people miss out on that. And I think that that is a real problem. Now, I want to be super clear that, as I mentioned at the start, cost of living has gone up in Australia. I absolutely empathise that for a lot of households. It's just not possible. They just they may have the capital to get started, but they may not be able to support an additional 
cost in their life. And I want to empathize with that, but that doesn't change the fact that you know, if we really genuinely want to create freedom, if we really genuinely want to move ourselves to a state where we can have autonomy over our time, do all the things that we want to do, escape the status quo, live a life of freedom, choice and abundance, these are the tough decisions we need to make now and how we need to go through the hard yards to get there. It it can come with some risks though. Like you need to be very confident. Like if you're like Jeff, Jeff's situation to me sounds like a dream, right? He and, and it all comes from buying that right property and having the temerity to look past the numbers and go, I'm not going to expect massive cash flow returns initially, but this is a property that he's done the due diligence on, right? The second two properties, he did the due diligence on and he's managed to build that that portfolio, that little silo within the portfolio. He's got a bigger portfolio, but I'm thinking like, even if that's all Jeff did, right? He's already made it, right? He's already hit safe. He's, he's, he's there. Like, all he needs to do is wait. And he can go to Vietnam and, and sit on a beach and write a book or, you know, bartend in Czechoslovakia or the Czech Republic. He can do whatever he wants now. He's basically secured his financial future. Now it all comes down to how ambitious is he going to be. And it all comes down to that mentality at the beginning, thinking, yeah, I actually believe I, I have the confidence in this property. Yeah, but here's two, two things. Number one, you mentioned risk. And I want to talk about risk and I want to talk about clarity because here's how you can cut through all this kind of stuff. So back in 2019, when Gabby and I started Dashdot, we started putting ourselves out there. We had some pretty good ideas about how we could help people to succeed in property and all of that kind of stuff. And then people started giving us money. They actually started going, okay, sounds good. Here's some money. Help me build a portfolio that's going to set me and my family up to, to create freedom. And I shit myself. I was like, holy smokes. What if we get this wrong? Like we had a high degree of confidence in what we were doing. But I was like, what if we get this wrong? Like, what if we do our best work and despite that best work, we make a mistake and that causes someone to, you know, go in the opposite direction of good. And that fear or paranoia, there's a great book called Only the Paranoid Survives, people might want to read, that, that level of paranoia was what drove us to invest so deeply in Dashdot, in our technology, to try and solve that specific problem. How can we reduce as close to zero, which you know you can't get to zero, but how can we minimize, how can we just continuously get closer and closer and closer towards zero in terms of our ability to stuff it up for our clients? And that was that's why we developed, that's why we've invested, we've invested nearly 5 million bucks now, like we've invested bloody over a million dollars in the last six months, just in developing technology that is specifically designed to help people to make informed, intelligent property decisions so that they can achieve the life they want with minim- whilst minimizing the risk. Now, that comes down, there's two parts to that. There's two key parts to that. One is, how do we find the right property in the right place at the right time? And that's why, we, that's why we've got Goldie. That's why we developed all the AI, the algorithms, like all of this kind of stuff. Tell, it's about a pinpoint. Tell me a little bit about Goldie because it's, it's evolved since I last heard you talk about it. Uh, yeah, Goldie has evolved significantly. So... Um, the first iteration was Goldie would tell us where the where the locations were. Now Goldie can tell us what they're going to do for the next fifteen months. So not only can not only can we identify them, we can actually identify them and also go, okay, well, how is this going to map out over the next fifteen months? Now there's a degree of accuracy and stuff like that, but I think our mean don't quote me on this, but the mean absolute error rate is some or the median absolute error rate is like four percent or something. It's very 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 good. When you say mean very error rate, that doesn't mean the number of properties that underperform. No. That means like how, yeah, it's a little bit technical, but so how, how, 
but some of them it does how it's how accurate is our forecasting into the future that's what it means okay so that's it's like yeah, yeah i mean 96 percent accurate uh it's a little more complex than that but yeah we it's a very small mean absolute error rate um which is which is super useful and it gives us a high degree of confidence that we can at least generally know that we're making really important decisions nobody else can do that so that's kind of like how gold is evolved and the software brings in that tech from like it's basically an extremely complex algorithm that scrapes information from websites throughout australia it oh it's a it's a bit more than that. So you're you're really starting to tease out what's the secret sauce. So okay. So so <laughs> that's my problem. <laughs> okay. Okay. So um, what Goldie does in effect is sucks in data from we've got sixteen key data sources. Now here, here's the thing: in order for us to develop the forecasting capabilities that we've developed, we had to invent entirely new what are called um, features, right? But effectively models, right? That didn't exist. So this isn't, so uh, for example, uh, yield or vacancy rate, you would class that as a feature, right? It's kind of like a, a thing. We had to invent. So there's 60, oh, yeah, don't quote me on this. I might get the numbers sort of slightly wrong, but there's there's 60-ish features that make up our forecasting capability and 39 of them or something like that. Maybe it's, anyway, the, the significant majority are, we had to actually invent them because they didn't exist. And in order to invent these features that didn't exist, which are a combination of all of these other, we had to go and find all of these, uh, um, you know, extraneous different data points. Work out how to work out how to invent them. We had to invent an entirely new system to then be able to process all that data to be able to find what would be correlated together to create new features. And so there's inventions stacked on top of inventions in order to get to a point where we then have this kind of like super model that can go, okay, yep, this is what's going to happen in a really meaningful way. And then what that does is gives us the capability to understand not just uh, prices, but also rents. Um, and so we also developed a whole bunch of other um, different scoring systems like growth scores and socioeconomic scores and, and all of this kind of stuff. And you know what's something really, really, really super interesting is that... Um, Project Spend is actually, um, I, I don't want to give, give away too much, but we're testing a new version of, of um, some of the um, outputs that we create, so some scoring systems, and it actually works better if we take out Project Spend because um, there's actually, the, which, which is super interesting because everyone thinks like more hospitals, more growth, the shit like that. But that's actually not necessarily true. Wrong. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, see, this is what's interesting. Um, one thing that I don't think I've told you before was that our uh, my uh, major at university was statistics. And so going through and having a look at mathematical models or statistical models to understand what's happening, and it has broad application or, or a very, very precise application in manufacturing, being able to, to form models, uh, error detection, uh, agriculture, and things like that, where you're pulling in tons and tons of variables to work out you know, which fertilizer is going to produce the best yield. But it's never really been done with property until Goldie came along, right? I've, I've seen a few people try and any other buyer's agency out there, and I've worked with with many uh, and many property investment firms, property marketers, et cetera. And, you know, the best thing you normally come up with is, you know, some some company might tell they're like, oh, we have a we have a 32 point checklist for assessing properties. And it's all totally subjective. And, you know, some guy in an office just go, oh, you will give that a five for X or whatever. It doesn't have the scientific rigor where it's pulling in data from all over the place and being able to give you a precise, you know, statistically significant 
um, result. Yeah, lots of people have lots of ideas when it comes to property, but they have no proof. And and this is the thing that always got me. And so, like in the first instance, we just we we got us tight. We put all these constrictions on it. But now we're now we've got the ability to go. Oh, and I'm just just making out. See, I hadn't actually prepped for this side of things. So the, I just want to preface: if I, I might have actually got the number of features wrong and stuff like that in Goldie, but but I, the concepts are still. But I hadn't prepped uh, some numbers for this. But just for example, we're now able to scientifically test things like. Um, you know, what is the impact of projects or different types of projects based on different locations and based on their socioeconomic, socioeconomic demographic makeup? What is the specific impact of schools in different types, in different ways, in different communities with different socioeconomic demographic makeups? What is the specific impact of things like public housing? How much does it actually matter if you are close to a road, a uh, like main road or not? How, like, what do all these things actually matter? You know, it was something really interesting that we just came out with, uh, come up with, uh, discovered recently, is that the suburb selection matters significantly, which we kind of knew, we've proven it now, um, but the suburb selection accounts for the vast majority of the growth that happens. The, suburb, the suburbs are very subjective because they're just made up of imaginary lines, but but it gives us a gives them a proc gives us as a proximal reference for location right so we use that as the as the as the reference point so suburb selection matters significantly more than um, asset selection and in fact buying a cheap property in the right suburb is far better than buying a really good property in the right suburb in terms of overall growth that was kind of the, the metric that came out and so it's, it's it's this continuous process of learning and refinement that allows us to continuously sharp yeah yeah because you're, you're constantly feeding more and more data into it yeah, but then, but then, rep, and then actually pressure testing that with our property team. Like our property team are insanely smart, you know, people as well. And then we go, okay, hey, here's the science. Let's test it. Let's see, and we kind of like have a have an interplay between those two areas. Going back to the um, to the initial story with Jeff, which I want to keep on coming back to because I think it's still like really. Yeah, I want to come back to it too. You got me distracted. Let me get in here because I had a second point. You bloody start started asking all about freaking Goldie and stuff like that, and. <laughs> I wanted to talk about I want to talk about having a portfolio plan because what actually and this is actually another kind of key part of the I said there was two parts there's what how do we find the right property right place right time the other part is like how would we even know what is the right property based on the individual right so right property at right place at the right time for who so you have to and you actually have to have a plan and you actually have to have a strategy in place to be able to work out what the right property in the right place at the right time is so the right property in the right place at the right time for me may be very different from the right property in the right place at the right time for you because we may have different economic considerations. I may have more borrowing capacity or less borrowing capacity or more capital or less capital or whatever the case may be. And so understanding that means there's no one size fits all. Like there are the right places to invest, sure, but there's a bunch of them. So then how do you marry this up with these two ideas? Now, one of the most powerful things that we have developed, like Yes, all of the science that I've just spoken about is super, super interesting. But one of the most interesting uh, things is the portfolio plan. Now, the reason for that is because it gives people clarity. Most people have no fucking idea what they're doing when they're coming to go to property investing. They're like, I don't know, I'll buy a property and I just hope that when I'm 30 years down the road, it's going to be worth more money. And they've got no clarity. Yeah, they're buying hope. Hope is not a strategy. And so by the same token... If someone said to you today, Emil, how would you like to lose $9,000 in cash flow every year 
Well, so how would you like to lose $9,000 in cash flow in the next 12 months or on this property? You might go, I don't want to do that. And you might then extrapolate that and go, I'm going to keep losing money forever. However, if you've got a plan that can specifically show you how by taking that current action, it will lead you to better and future actions that may in fact accelerate your ability to get to freedom, your desired point of freedom, that would change the way you would think about it. Because if someone said, if someone said, hey, do you want to lose $9,000 this year? You might be like, no. But if someone said, hey, do you want to lose $9,000 this year so that you can make a million dollars in the next three years? Someone might say, you might go, $9,000 this year so I can make $3 million or a million dollars in the next three? Yeah, okay, cool. That sounds like a pretty bloody good deal to me. But it is only through the clarity that you can gain by having a very sophisticated piece of technology help you to develop the plan that you can have that confidence. Because without the confidence, you can't make good decisions. So I think that's actually one of, the, one of the most important things. Well, you've answered another one of my questions, which was going to be, in Jeff's situation, it was negatively geared to the tune of $9,000 a year, right? That's the pre-tax cash flow position. Factor in the tax losses that you can offset against your income, and it ends up being neutral cash flow. It costs him zero. But what if he had that in a trust and it's still costing him $9,000? Is it worth it? And to me, it feels like it comes down to your individual circumstances. And, and one of one of the other risk factors that we haven't talked about is you only get to offset that $9,000 in Jeff's case. You only get to offset that if you have income to offset it against. So if you're in a situation where uh, your income is, is not super predictable or something like that, then there's an additional risk factor, which doesn't mean you shouldn't do it. It just means you need to be cognizant of that when you're deciding, okay, can I afford to take this, you know, this tiny little bit of risk? And and but even then, worst case scenario, in Jeff's case, with a property that good, that that's basically anchored the the next two properties, which on their own are enough of a portfolio for him to, you know, maybe give it five, ten, maybe fifteen years. It's to me it's inconceivable that that is not gonna be enough. He's he's set up for life now. Now I'm just But it comes down to risk. And you, you you pointed this out earlier. Now in Jeff's case, that worked out really, really well. But I've seen countless examples of individuals who have not had that happen, where they have, and I've got to say, I actually have nothing against new builds, right? But statistically speaking, I the vast majority, in, I don't want to say 100%, but I mean, it's got to be up there in the high 90s, of people who have had negative outcomes in real estate have been through buying in new developments. The amount of stories that I've seen and heard where some kind of developer, spruker type scenario is like, yeah, don't worry about the fact that it's negative cash flow. You can claim your tax back and you're going to get all this growth because it's a fantastic la-di-da sort of scenario. And then the property goes down in value. So not only are they not making any money, they're potentially losing cash flow each year. And also it's going into negative equity. Right. Now, I don't go on Facebook very often, but looked on there like two days ago and it was like the first thing I saw pop up in my feed was somebody posting a story like that. And so this is where it comes down to the risk component. And this is where having a strategy and the and the right, you know, in our case, the right technology to mitigate that risk really comes down to it. Because otherwise, you know, otherwise you could find yourself in a bad situation. So you've got to ask yourself, it's not just about a case of going, yeah, that's okay. Lose money because it'll all work out. Well, it might not, right? So how do you minimize your risk? So then you've got to actually work out, okay, what could because because the individual who might be looking to invest themselves, who, to your point, 
even a lot of property professionals have just got like some checklists, which are spurious at best, but that's probably 10,000 times better than the average individual investor who doesn't have even a checklist. So then you've got to ask yourself, oh, do I look at negative cash flow and say, this makes it look like a good deal? Not necessarily, right? Or negatively geared, because you've actually then got to have, have a supporting evidence to say that this is actually going to work out well. So how do we mitigate that risk then? Uh, well, we mitigate it by investing obscene amounts of money in technology too. <laughs> <laughs> right, right? You've got to, you get the right okay. property and that takes away a lot of yep. the risk, but then you also have an income risk. And so getting things like uh, income protection insurance, Things, yeah, that's a good. That's a good point. Things like that that can sort of mean then you know worst case scenario you know we we don't want this to happen to anyone but you know part of being a good investor is being able to assess risk and if there is a risk that something may happen to your job lots of things happening with uh, with AI these days um, economic uncertainty might pop up again people talk about a recession or whatever you know people going down these kind of like doomsday scenarios uh, for what their life could look like. Um, getting a little bit of insurance around that so that, you know, even if that does happen, your property portfolio is still comfortable with it. Yeah, I 100% agree with everything you've said. And I'm I'm not going to even bookend on it. I think it's awesome. I think, yes, risk management, thinking about how you're going to manage the risk is really, really important. But the other thing that you've got to consider consider is not just, is you've actually got to look at, you've got to zoom out and take a broader economic look. In Like in the current context, yes, interest rates have gone up, you know, precipitously for the last 18 months. And so it's easy to be kind of freaked out by that. Part of the reason that a lot of properties are negatively geared, negative cash flow, all of this kind of stuff in the current set of circumstances is because interest rates have risen so much faster than rents or prices have been able to cut, keep up with. This is where we've got the big opportunity, right? If, you, if you're a prospective investor right now, interest rates go up, that stalls, that stalls the growth in the market, which means that it's... All of that latent pressure, like there's still plenty of heat in the market. It's just not being realized because people can't afford it. Interest rates don't stay high forever. So it's a really good buying environment. Then the interest rate you, you can get in and it might be negatively geared. But then after the cash flow considerations with the tax man, it might be neutral or positive or even just slightly negative. Then the interest rates come down and boom, suddenly you're getting the cash flow. And when the interest rates come down, it's not unreasonable. It doesn't happen all the time. Like the correlation is nowhere near a one-to-one or anything like that. But suddenly, like you're getting the cash flow and the growth kicks in. And so- That's exactly what I was going to talk about, right? Is the fact that interest rates are like more than likely to come down. And so if you buy now- then what is going to happen is you're going to start to realize a lot more cash flow as the interest rates come down. But the other the other consideration is even if interest rates stayed the same, rent rents are still going to go up because we have a chronic housing shortage in Australia. You know, and I'm not saying that like it's a good thing. It's actually a really big problem, right? That I wish would get sorted. But we've got a chronic housing shortage in Australia, which means that even if interest rates stay as they are, even if they don't go down, right? What is going to happen is rents are going to continue to go up, prices will continue to go up, and so. Even to that degree, from a risk management perspective, it's a timing issue, right? So whilst you may have a negative cash flow position today or a negatively geared position today, or it might be neutral today, on a timing basis, particularly if you bought well and in the right areas, you're going to net net get a lot of gro- lot of, get rental growth and price growth over time. So you're still going to be in the money. This is the consideration. As long as you bought in the right the right property in the right place at the right time. Okay. All righty. Um- I'm wondering whether or not there's anything else that I wanted to ask you. I feel like we've covered <laughs> we've covered everything from my from my little list. 
I think, hey, well, it's good. I think it's good. I think it's, I think it's one of the, I think it's a very, it's a good questions, by the way. I've enjoyed the dynamic of this podcast. I mean, this has been good. We should do, we should do more of them because, um, lock it in, Eddie. <laughs> yeah. That's oh, <laughs> good. Um, I think it's a, it's such an interesting, um, consideration for people right now because, you know, I do see a lot of people stalling. And again, I want to massively, I can't, I can't emphasize, the amount that I empathise with the families who are doing it tough at the moment and can't, can't just can't manage to support a situation where there might be additional um, cash flow deficits in their personal income. However, for a lot of people, that's not the case. The case is that they might see a number on a spreadsheet and not like it. They might go, oh, no, I thought it was going to be like this and that, now it looks like that. Oh, no, thanks. I'm not going to invest. I'm going to wait. And it's like, you just got to ask yourself, like, is that actually the smartest decision you can make for yourself and your family, or are you, or are you just being emotional? And I, I, I don't, I don't want to sound too brutal, but like, most people are making emotional decisions when they should be making logical ones. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. My wife, case in point, we looked at a property. I worked out how much we should be paying for it. You know, you know, doing doing all of the numbers. You know, I, I fully nerded up on it. Worked out how you much. Used the Apex report, I'm sure. Yeah, <laughs> and you work out how much you should be paying for it. Uh, but she wasn't happy to pay what it was worth, right? Because she's <laughs> she has to get a bargain, and 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 so, a piece at home. I decided, okay, right, we'll go in with this silly little lowball offer. It didn't go anywhere, um, but she she resisted the purchase of that property right through until we did buy it. But she the, there was all of that resistance that came from her because there was an emotional there was there was an emotional thing going on. Where, where she just wants to get bargains, right? As so many people do, they really want to get like awesome bargains. There's nothing wrong with paying a fair price for something that's going to make you a millionaire. There's nothing wrong with that at all. The reason most people don't, I don't want to like sound too controversial, right? But the reason most people never achieve the freedom they want, never make the wealth that they should, is because they aren't prepared to get uncomfortable, right? Now, getting uncomfortable comes in many formats. Maybe it's, uh, aggressively saving so you can get your first deposit. Maybe it's getting getting comfortable with uncertainty and ambiguity. But to the end, they think on too short of a time horizon. So to the de- to the degree that you can get comfortable in get comfortable being uncomfortable, and to the degree that you can take a longer term time horizon, is the degree to which you will be able to manage your emotions and make better financial decisions. Because it's the it's the person who has got the most emotional control that makes the best that makes the biggest swings. And I, I see this, I speak to business owners all the time and, the, you know, the ones that are all playing small, the ones who are stuck and can just not work out how to get their business to get a bit, they're, they're all the ones who are freaking out about little, tiny, unnecessary decisions. It's like play a bigger game and move faster and, and property investors can learn the same lesson. I've experienced this this exact same thing. Working in marketing, right, at times I've had, uh, you know, 50, 60, 70, 80 clients at a time. And so you, you get a nice little window into people's businesses. And one of the things that really struck me is that businesses that were doing really, really well, uh, we're talking like uh, in the tens of mills, some in the hundreds of mills, right? Uh, with small teams, small crews, they've got a lot of costs because they're paying for, you know, Google and a lot of advertising marketing costs. But those companies where they were the people who like out and out were doing the absolute best, if you have a look in their business, it could look like an absolute disaster, an absolute like a nightmare. 
you could look at it and go, look, look why, why is that happening over there? That's a mess. That's a mess. Everything's a mess. But there might be two or three or four key metrics or key decisions that they need to make. And they get those two or three or four things right, and they've got a business making, you know, 100 mil plus per year. And you look at it and you go, look, look, wait, why are people, why, why is this email got out to this person? You know, it's, it's wrong. It's a mess. It's, it's a total cock up. It's just those three or four key decisions. And in property investment, your first property, that's, that's a big decision. That's the one you don't want to mess up. You don't want to get emotional about it. You don't want to go, oh no, look, it's, it's, it's negatively geared to $9,000. You know, that, that one property purchase has basically set up, uh, Jeff for financial success. I don't think he even realizes at the moment how successful he already is. Right? He could down tools, then he's fine. He's still, but, but you know, he, he wants more, he wants legacy, those sorts of things. So his portfolio is obviously bigger than just those three and it's going to keep on growing. But, you know, just getting that one decision right has managed to set him up for, for, for what would for anyone else like pretty much be financial freedom. Yep. Yeah, 100%. And it's about making, it's about understanding what are those key decisions like how, how like how do you how do you let some things let some fires burn and just go okay that's okay because that's not the main game you know you could have the most you could have the most organized filing cabinet in the world but that doesn't mean that, that you're going to have the best business in the world you you know and so so really working out how to focus on the things that matter most is the thing that's going to get you where you want to go and the whole function of investing in real estate like who cares about real estate no one should actually care about real estate. The whole function is to achieve freedom, to achieve a state where you can do what you want, when you want, with who you want. And so making sure that you're focusing on the real goal is, is actually the most important. So if we boil it down to what are those big decisions, I would say the location of where you're going to buy that first property. What's the condition of that property? Just and and a lot of that can be taken away with a reliable system. I I I, I yeah I, I I wouldn't. I actually wouldn't. I would say the one big decision is what's your strategy. Because like I can tell you, I can tell you from very clear experience. It's not even the condition of the property. I bought properties personally when I was still on the tools. Uh, I acquired properties for clients. So one of our clients, Jay, we bought this property. And if you look and. It's so funny because we've used this as a reference internally because the property team sometimes have a propensity to kind of like turn down properties which don't maybe look super good, right? Now, this property that I bought for Jay, it was his first property that he ever bought and it settled on the 23rd of March, 2020, right as COVID was kicking off. It was his first ever property. It was all of his savings, young guy. He was obviously nervous because COVID had just kicked off and all this kind of stuff. And I've got to say, property didn't look that flash. It wasn't that good. We looked at photos of it recently and it was like, whew, not that great. But he made, I don't have the stats in front of me because I haven't prepared for this, but he made one of the biggest returns that any of our clients have seen out of any of our clients. We've helped nearly a thousand people, we've had about a thousand people so far. And it has, so it had nothing to do with how the property looked, and it, but it had everything to do with making sure he understood the strategy, obviously right location, right property, right place, right time, yes, and a clear strategy and a clear plan to get from where he is now to where he wants to this, this now taps into the emotionality of it as well, because some people get emotional about properties. And so you hear, well, pretty much everyone everyone gets emotional to some degree. It's a matter of understanding when you're being emotional and when you're not so that you can make the best decisions for yourself, I would say. Now- That's why you, but that's why you need to distance yourself from right. it as well. Yeah. Because it's- So I, so I, I get emotional about- Wealth creation tool. 
Yeah, but I get emotional about all stuff all the time. Like I make YouTube videos and I can't review the edits to to approve them. Do you know why I can't approve the edits? Because I watch it and I'm too and I'm like, oh, I said something dumb there and that's shit. And I'm way too emotional. And so I had to remove myself from it and say, look, I'm too emotional. I, I can't be objective about this. So I'm gonna have to trust somebody else to approve the edits and to decide whether they're good and publish them. And I don't look at them. I don't look at them because I'll I'll critique them too much. And that is the degree to which you need to put somebody else in place and go, in this case, for example, dash dot and go, hey, I need you because I'm too emotional. I need you to tell me, is this the right thing for my portfolio based on my plan? Is this going to work for me or not? And you got to have a bit of faith in there as well. And also keeping that emotional emotionality out of it afterwards. If you can look at it like this is a wealth creation tool, right? It's not necessarily a house because, you know, there's that old explanation, the, um, uh, the worst house in the best street is way better than the best house in the worst street. Now, from an investment perspective, that's 100% correct the vast majority of the time. <laughs> 100% correct the vast majority of the time. <laughs> See what I did there? But from an emotional perspective, it's not great because we often want to compare ourselves to whatever else is around, right? How successful is, is uh, or, you know, how does my house look compared to the neighbours? That kind of thing. And it's important not to... Or, or it's important to be evaluating the right things if you are looking at your property portfolio, probably not compared to somebody else's, but if you're just trying to evaluate it for yourself. Yeah. Well, comparison's the thief of joy. You should never look over the fence of what anybody else is doing. You should look at your own shit, exactly. decide if it's good. And, and, <laughs> and you could be on a great track and yeah. All right. Exactly. Exactly. Emil, this has been good. I think we're out of time. I think we are. Yeah. Well, an hour. An hour, a whole hour, but it's been good. It's been an action-packed hour. It's good. Yeah. It's a good dynamic. We should definitely do it again. Um, I've enjoyed this. We've covered a lot of ground, and I hope that it's helped some people to potentially think a little bit differently in this current environment because my, you know, I've been saying this now for some time. There are lots of people sitting on the sidelines, and as soon as interest rates start to come down, they're going to be jumping off the fence, and they're going to be getting into the game, and you don't want to be, you know, in the red ocean. You want to be ahead of the pack. You actually want to get a head start. And now's your opportunity to get a head start. And again, I empathize with the people who may not be able to afford it in the current environment. And that's, you know, you're just going to play the cards as they are. But it, but if you do have the capability, now's now's the time. It's, um, it's it's definitely a party you don't want to be late to. Exactly. This one. When the when the interest rates come down again, which is inevitable, then yeah. you're going to see, it, it's going to be like getting a shark tank and dropping in a bucket of offal. Yeah, totally. And this, look, we're already saying, like, even already, like, we're fighting to get good, good, good stock because there's just not enough properties and something going to get worse. And so when that happens, prices tend to drive a lot faster. So anyway, let's leave it there, Emil. Great episodes. I look forward to next time. Thank you so much, Goose. Cheers. Thanks. See you soon. Bye. Bye.